I've said it before, Americans have a horrible relationship with food. But our guest heretic, Dina Falcone, doesn't. Join us for a sensuous walk where we'll forage for delicious wild edibles, liberate ourselves from a broken food system, and nourish our souls using her gorgeous book, Foraging and Feasting, coming up next on the Nutrition Heretic Podcast. So I'm sure you've heard that as you age, it gets harder to lose weight. Well, that's total bull because my friends, Laura and Veronica Chows, they can prove it. They're a mother-daughter duo, and they've lost 125 pounds between the two of them at ages 50 and 20. And they've kept it off for over two years without starvation, deprivation, or hunger. So now you can learn their system and a whole lot more with a free 10-day trial to their online membership. They'll give you the diet, the recipes, classes, and more. Sign up today at nutritionheretic.com forward slash utmost diet. Fat is bad for you. I just pop a pill and I'm fine. Meat is murder. It's time for bad food punishment. It's time for real nourishment. It's time for the nutrition heretic. The following program is provided as information only and may not be construed as medical or health advice. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any disease. No action or inaction should be taken solely on the basis of the information provided here. Please consult with a licensed healthcare professional or doctor on any matter relating to your health and well-being. Hello and welcome to the Nutrition Heretic Podcast. This is Adrian Hugh, the Nutrition Heretic, talking to you this week about uh, foraging. You know, this is one of my, in, in light of kind of the direction this country is taking, uh, it's becoming more and more clear to me that we have to be masters of our own destiny and we clearly cannot rely on governments to do it for us because it's us every chance they get. Uh, so, you know, one, one thing that, uh, has, that I've been focusing on is here in my local neighborhood. The schools here in Hawaii, uh, we live in actually one of the more, probably the, the most affluent town on the island. Uh, however, 70% of our children, uh, are on free and reduced lunch. And don't even get me started on what that free and reduced lunch consists of. However, uh, it really is unnecessary in so many parts of our country, but particularly in Hawaii, because where, you know, some uh, other parts of the country, foraging means, often means consuming things that you would never find in the supermarket. Uh, here in Hawaii, almost everybody has some kind of citrus, avocados, amaranth uh well that's not necessarily available in the in the supermarket it is in jamaica if that helps <laughs> but mm-hmm. um you know there's there's um there, there's just, it's just really unnecessary i mean if i want cinnamon i go to a local park and pick cinnamon leaves if i want guava i go mm-hmm. to my backyard or i go to a park uh my friend up the street has uh beautiful oranges and sage and rosemary and all these things growing in her in her yard that she is not eating. So she says, Adrian, just come by and pick whatever you want. Take it. I mean, it's just so unnecessary for people to be starving in this state, particularly. But, you know, throughout the country, there are things uh, that you can eat. You are standing on food and believe it or not. And uh, that's why I wanted to have uh, this week's guest. Uh, she's our guest heretic is Dina Falcone. She is the author of Foraging and Feasting, a Field Guide and Wild Food Cookbook. And it is a gorgeous book. Oh my God, Dina, how did you do this? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the show, by the way. Love and sweat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, clearly, I mean, it is one beautiful book. I don't, I, I honestly cannot remember the last time I saw a book this gorgeous. Um, that was about food. I mean, I've seen, I guess, similar books about dragonflies, uh, <laughs> but this is just, 
<laughs> but this is this is really just a, a phenomenal uh, concept for a book. Tell me, how did you get in into foraging? I got into foraging via food as medicine, the okay. theme that I've been chasing after and following since I was a kid, a preteen, 11-year-old. I got very interested in healing through food, um, and that segued into herbal medicine and into foraging for your food and medicine. Okay. Okay. And when you say, you know, were, were you suffering with anything in particular, or was it just but because you have a mentor, um, or at least at the, at that time, who introduced you to yeah. it, um, yeah. you know, what, was there something in particular that was bothering you or a family member, or was it just the aha moment of, oh, this is why we put things in our mouth? <laughs> I mean, I think for me, a friend pointed out my motivation to use food as medicine and follow that path really, I think, had to do with control. <laughs> yeah. With, you know, waking up. I was raised in the East Village of New York City in a very hectic in the late 60s through the 70s into the 80s. And it was a pretty wild and crazy time. And I think, and also an incredible time for food exploration. That area mm -hmm. was rich with diversity of people investigating all these different, you know, food themes, macrobiotics, raw food, the wheatgrass craze as well as ethnic foods were surrounding me. So I was a, in, steeped in a very food-focused culture. My mom also loves food. But the healing part, the choices, uh, to narrow the thinking so that I was navigating and helping myself, I think, was is probably the underlying um, motivation or unconscious mechanism. But <clears throat> at that age, I was suffering from headaches that would come and go. Mm -hmm. It wasn't they were just intense and it wasn't a migraine necessarily, but it was enough to say, hey, I want to do something about this. And um, there was a mentor. His name was Mickey Carter, and he had cured himself of terminal illness. Wow. And he was he was my inspiration. You know, he, he led, you know, led me not too verbally, not very much with any formality. It was just, you know, I would go to him. So what do you do now? So what herbs do you take now? He gave me my first herb book. Um, he was not well educated. You know, he was the super of buildings in our neighborhood. Oh wow! And, you know, he but his he was so heartful and soulful, and for whatever reason, he sparked it or he held it. You know, and I followed that, and it continued to grow just from so many different angles. I <clears throat> remember picking the mint at a camp for Mickey because he would always drink his peppermint tea after mm -hmm. dinner. So I remember at 12 years old that I harvested a lot of this wild mint so that I could dry it and give it to him mm. um, and things like that. So yeah, that, that sort of sets the stage a bit for, for this. I mean, I think it's the empowering part that's most exciting to me about the foraging. And again, about the food as medicine is we can really help ourselves and um, we can feed ourselves and the issue of food sovereignty and, and you speaking to the starvation issue is something that, I feel, hmm, you know, deeply about as well and and that we need to, or I feel part of foraging and feasting and the book's theme is to help people reconnect to all of the abundance and all the food that they step on every day. Absolutely. You know, just, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what I'm thinking about too right now, because of the, the way you phrased it really got me thinking on this track, which is that uh, we... <sighs> Well, not you and me, <laughs> and probably not most of our listeners, but people are, are led to believe that GMOs are going to save the world and they're going to, you know, outproduce. Now we've already done episodes on how flawed that thinking is because these crops do not produce more. Uh, one of the things that I am often talking about is the fact that we throw away so much food. You know, we've also done mm. episodes on how much at the supermarket goes into the trash. But here is a, another way that we can understand that, um, you know, even though they're throwing the, you know, the leftover organics, the GMOs, you know, like, oh, we got to grow all this food, but then you're too poor to afford it. I mean, we've got laws here in the U.S. where we can't feed the homeless. Um, you know, people going to jail for, for giving a homeless person a sandwich or something is, is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. wow. Um, but, uh, you know, and then in, we know that in India, they're literally taking thousands of, or hundreds of thousands of pounds of lentils and, um, 
rice and throwing them into the ocean because the untouchables don't deserve it. So why we're going towards GMO when there's so much just literally being trashed is ridiculous. Uh, but here we're also, we're talking about another thing, which is that we're standing on food. There is so much that we have, we have had kind of bred out of us in recognizing what is growing wild. I mean, I think most people don't realize that the dandelions that grow on their lawn are edible. Mm-hmm. As as an example, exactly. uh, sure. what are, what are some of the other surprising foods that people might have right now in their backyard mm-hmm. and have no clue that that was food and they've been you know working really hard to exterminate it. Sure. Well, depending on where you are right now, here in the Northeast where I live, there's not a whole lot out there. It, it, it was six <laughs> no, degrees this morning. Which, by the so, way, I've used but, to flush my toilet. <laughs> when when, my, when my, water, my water broke, <laughs> my water oh, pipes broke no, in the no. winter once in New Jersey. So we just, oh, we, so my daughter was like, we could use snow. I was like, brilliant. So we filled up the tank with snow. Oh. <laughs> that um, was, but anyway, I mean, I'm looking out the window here where I live now in the Mid-Hudson Valley and I can see the pine trees. And so they're still there for us. And if we want to make a, a pine tea uh, with the needles, you, mm. you know, you can make a nice uh, fragrant beverage that has some vitamin C in it. And But so for surprises now, you need to hunt. <laughs> you yes. need to hunt more than you need to forage, I'd say. You could right. find rose hips um, out in the landscape still. I'm trying to think of what else you might find right now. Sorry, are um, pine needles, is that like a Native American tradition, consuming pine needle tea or uh, anything like that? I believe it is a Native American, probably also European. Wherever mm. the pine grew, R- I believe people would drink its tea. This is the white pine. It is the one we have here. So, it's, yeah, and the bark was used. I, though I have to confess that I'm not a survival eater. Right. I really, I, I'm really somebody who loves the easy forage so i you know some people i i know are working with bark now and i'm not going to go for that (laughs) (laughs) come on there's limits on everything will you (laughs) well there doesn't have to be it's just the way that because i live where i live i'm i'm a hybrid person so you know i take the best of both worlds i have a really excellent food co-op you know so we can purchase our food and it's not our regional some of it's regional but some of it's shipped in and um, but, you know, so I'd say that in the Northeast in the winter, it isn't the time where you're going to be focused on focusing on so much on your foraging, but in Hawaii, there is, oh my God, you know, and in Southern parts of the, you know, the United States and other parts of the world, you know, we just happen to be in a harsher winter climate. Um, so the surprises that you might find, let's say, if you're a little further South, maybe in the Carolinas, um, you're going to find something like chickweed, which is another <laughs> weed that most people throw out that they weed out, that's an incredible salad green in the cooler months. You know, know, that's something that you could go forage. And if it's warm enough here and the snow melts and the ground thaws a little, we'll have chickweed. You know, that's the first thing we'll see. Um, And that's a really mild but potent, in terms of nutrient content, salad green. And um, really easy to serve. Mix it with some lettuce if, you know, you have newbies that you're feeding. But really... I could just take handfuls of that and put a vinaigrette on, and I'm, it's it's the best mescaline. You know, it's just delicious, tender. Um, another green that you're going to come across is the the garlic mustard. That's another one that oh. hides, you know, through the winter or is available through the winter in more in milder climates, and and that's the hated, you know, the the weed that people are hating these days because it's an invasive, and rightfully so, perhaps. You need to control it. I wouldn't say hate it, um, but you know it's an incredibly uh, useful food. All of its parts are eaten. Like you can dig the root, use it as horseradish, eat Ooh. leaves like a salad, or make a pesto. Eat the flowers when they come. Eat the seeds if you if you feel you want to go that far and make a mustard out of the wild seeds. Wow! So this is an invasive. It's a biennial, and it's another example of something that people throw away. You know, they they hate it and spit on it. And in fact, it's their food and medicine. I mean, it's also medicinal. All these plants that are our food, that are wild, are often very medicinal too. Um, yeah, so, you know, you're you're speaking to this idea of all the waste and the waste stream, and it's everywhere. It's almost like you just have to change the way you see the world. You know, you put on, it's, it's all right there. And the issue of scarcity is, 
more of a political one, and it's a real one when you live from that world, and that's yes, all you see. It's a absolutely. cultural issue, and then you can. And part of my hope with the forging and feasting theme is is to celebrate the hidden. You know, celebrate the things that are actually already there. You just you need to just retrain how to see. The same with what you're throwing out. The way you were speaking to that, all the waste that we have, like. I'm very much into making stocks, you know, mm-hmm. so for me and I do eat a lot of animal, but it's from a grass-fed uh, herd that a friend of of mine raises, and so I'll use every part of that animal, including like the sinew that most people will throw away right. once you've eaten a steak. Well, I just stash all that away, and then you make this incredible broth. Yep. Um, that, you know, so it's just rethinking, which is also something I really enjoy, you know, it's not from desperation. Absolutely. It, yeah. Yeah, you know, before Something I came, even, sorry, go on. No, I, I was just going to say, it's both a celebration, and for me, for whatever reason, my personality is appreciates that challenge of how to maximize use and, you know, really honor all the parts as much as possible related to food use. Right, right. Well, you know, for me, I came to like bone broths. I I don't forage per se. I mean, like now that I live here, but we'll, we'll get into my foraging background. But <laughs> but with the with the bone broth, it's so to me, really, it started because I was broke, you know, and mm-hmm. I was broke. And like you, I loved food. So I would, you know, turn on Julia Child or whoever was the you know chef du jour on TV and or, you know, buy a book. And it would say like, you know, you get a Chinese cookbook and it says add two tablespoons of chicken stock. Well, where the Am I going to get chicken stuff? You know, like, <laughs> I don't want to use, mm-hmm. I don't right. want to use the, the bouillon. Uh, and so I would save all my bones like you. Um, didn't mar- matter if I had made a curry with it or whatever. You know, I'd save all the bones in a bag. And when I got enough, I'd, I'd simmer them and make a stock. And then I'd freeze that in cubes. And when I do my little stir fries and things, I'd throw a cube of chicken stock in there. So, Definitely. you know. You know, really, really simple stuff. Uh, but you, you talked about garlic mustard. And I remember when I lived in New Jersey having these little, uh, you know, weeds, so to speak. And they were clearly some kind of garlicky, chivey thing. Uh, mm. but the reason I'm bringing this up is not because, uh, you know, to talk about me as much as because I think that <laughs> other people go through this where they pick it up and they're like, smells like some kind of onion. And then they're, but because it's not on a store shelf, we think, yeah, and, and then, of course, you know, government likes to back it up with, don't do that. You don't know what you're going to get. And then you watch movies like mm-hmm. Into the Wild. Did you see that movie, Into the Wild? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how he I like ate that thing at the end of the, the movie and, and then turned the page and was like, oh, I ate the poisonous thing that looks like the food. Um, you right. know, I think a lot of people are afraid that they're going to eat something that is poisonous uh how mm-hmm. do we get past that i mean i think your your book has uh is is a great place to start but you know how how do people get over misidentification sure and it's a huge issue and as you say the literacy like we've lost our connection to understanding plants to learning how to use them for food and medicine so it is reestablishing that language becoming literate again in plant identification, which was part of our ancestry. I mean, we had to do that in order to survive. And it's been cut off in our, you know, in the U.S. for the good, what, three or four generations now. Um, if you go to other countries, it's still intact. There's a lot of foraging. And, and in a lot of European, you know, they still hold on to the, the foraging. But us here in the U.S., so, yeah, the, the issue is we've been frightened. Well, since we don't know anymore, what we don't know then frightens us. And yeah. so... Um, that's part of the job, you know, it's part of my job as an herbalist is to, hu- is to help people re-engage with um, nature through plants and understanding how to connect to the plants again through tactile um, or sense, sense there, it's called organoleptic learning. So it's direct learning through your senses. And um, so you become awakened again to the language of the plant kingdom through just simply looking, uh, smelling, tasting, touching. Tasting is last and not safe always. So we don't always, I, I wouldn't say that to a beginner, but <laughs> so it's, re- it's reestablishing your connection to the plant kingdom. And it isn't like, okay, um, you're going to learn all the plants all at once. It takes time. It's like you have to practice the language of foraging. You have to practice this, um, you know, this lost art, basically. Right. And then it starts to come right back. It's, you know, it's really 
it's pretty exciting and very fast and um but it does take practice and you're not going to go and eat things until you're 100% sure of identification so i'm with that same story but you don't have to approach the plants with fear but with with just respect and patience because you need to go through the stages of knowing the plant and then once you do then you say ah here's my food or here's my medicine or no i don't eat this plant um so there is some danger in this but it's it's not large the plants in at least in our area, there are not very many plants that will kill us, you know, maybe three or four. Some might make us feel uncomfortable. Mostly it's it's pretty safe. I, you know, having said that, again, don't go out and eat something you don't know. You can eat with 100% certainty. Um, so that's where, that's my job here is to help um, bridge that that world again, you know, reintroduce. And for me too, because it's something I'm constantly developing. I'm also just you know, as every year new plants arrive, I need to learn what they are. Who are you? You know, what do I use you for? Um, so it's developing the skills of identification and then using um, cross-referencing. So you, you begin to do ethnobotany. And uh, to me, it's super exciting. <laughs> it right, sounds right. nerdy, but it's like, you know, it's <laughs> one of my passions. So Right. Well, yeah. then how does somebody go, you know, they've got your book in hand and they see something and it looks like the picture or the illustration, how do they, you know, like, is there another text or something that they can go to if they're still like not quite, or is it just kind of, you know, if when in doubt, throw it out kind of thing? Well, no, not when in doubt, throw it out, when in doubt, observe. Okay. So, so observe the habits of of its growth or when you say observe, okay. The whole thing, observe meaning like, you know, you're meeting a new friend. Who do you, who are you? What do you look like? What do you do? You know, so you're really spending time. And that's the part that most Americans don't do. <laughs> no, the instant gratification. Back, you know? <laughs> exactly. So it's sort of like, so it's sort of like going on a date, right? <laughs> you don't yeah. want to jump into bed with this thing. <laughs> no. Right. So in this case, you don't want to put it in your mouth yet. That's the difference, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> just, but you can certainly spend time learning um, about the plant, which is what I do. A new plant arrives. I don't know who they are. I'm going to spend time, watch it grow, watch it through the whole season, watch it flower, watch it seed. I might have to watch it for two years because it doesn't do the flowering in its first year. Um, so, And because I have some skill there, then I can start narrowing down who I think it is, meaning what family it belongs to, the genus. So categorizing it um, in botanical terms, which is not, it, sound, it sounds a little far out, you know, meaning difficult. It's not at all. It's just you know, you be, you're familiar and you get you get to understand patterns in nature, patterns in plants, and you put them, oh, I believe that's in the mustard family, but I won't eat it until I'm confirmed, you know, with its identification, I'm 100%. Even me, I won't, I might take the teeniest taste just to get a, a, a slight feel for the flavor, and then I'm going to spit it entirely out because I don't want to take that risk, but I still want to learn the plant. So I'm going to pay attention to it. I'm not going to, when in doubt, you really do want then to pay attention more than ever mm-hmm. when you know the plants off and you're like, all right, I know who you are. You know, I don't have to pay attention anymore. Right. Um, but so I would say that the book that um, the forging and feasting book tries very much to give the reader all the clues that they need to confirm that they're with that plant. And they might need to, some of the plant pages track a plant for three years, two or three years because it's a perennial and you wouldn't gotcha. see some of it. So it's, you know, it's cheating for the viewer. It's me bringing to them something they'd have to have spent three years, and then I'm giving them the clues. So you want to always match what you're seeing. Um, being, you know, a plant detective, I call it. And so the plant pages really help you do that well. Um, but then really get involved with your local foraging, you know, with local foragers and foraging groups. Okay. That's a great way to learn, you know. It's just you just go out there, spend time, and you learn 10 or 20 plants really quickly, and then you're going to forget them unless you practice. Right. So you just like go anything. home and you keep reviewing them. And you and in the Forging and Feasting book, you would then refer back to that book so you, know, so you could say, oh, yeah, yeah, this is who we have here, and remind yourself of why you know it's what it is. I mean, it's like that. It's, it's a very simple game, but just with persistence, you know. Right. You right. get it. You know, it just comes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you, you, uh, had me thinking about a mushroom walk that, <laughs> that I did some years mm-hmm. ago and it scared the bejesus out of me because, you know, they turn around and, and be, I guess mushrooms fall into that category of, 
things that we're more aware can be poisonous. Um, you know, have the potential for being poisonous. And they just mushrooms keep driving that are, home. <laughs> yeah. Mu- mushrooms are really much more dangerous. Yeah. And that's different than the plants. So just to differentiate, when you're foraging for plants, you, you know, again, you're, there are some risks, but the mushrooms are that the realm of mushrooming is so much more risky. I don't teach that because right. of that. I feel more concerned there, a lot more concerned. Right, right. I, I have yeah. a friend in New Jersey who, uh, she's from Italy originally, and she would just go out into the woods and come back with a bag full of mushrooms and hand me some. And I'm like, <laughs> holy crap. Do you know what you're doing, lady? I mean, she's she's still walking around, but yeah. <laughs> although I haven't I heard from her in a couple like, of years, I I'm not eating this. Nah. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I was like, let me see you for go make some eggs and put some mushrooms in it, and then and I'll I'll observe exactly. you for a few minutes before I eat. Um, but it's just kind of it, it is the point where like people from other cultures, like this Italian friend, or I know other Eastern European friends, Russian friends, they they know their mushrooms and they just do it. Yeah. They go out there and it's part of, it's part, it's like second nature to them. And for us, there's phobia around it. You know, it's pointing to, to that same issue. But for me, I feel that mushrooms are more dangerous, so I'm not going to be as easy with them. Right, right. Absolutely. But it's still intact. The You know, the foraging, the mushrooming is still intact in, in so many other parts of the world. So here, us Americans, you know, have to catch up what we've lost or, you know, re reconnect the dots that have been you know, disconnected for us or whatever. Yeah. And, and I think it's a, it's a big part of the food industry piece. You know, it's really. Oh yeah. Scare sovereignty. Like, oh yeah. yeah. I, I think they, I, I really think that they, you know, want to scare us so that we depend completely on them and whatever swill they throw at us, we're compelled to buy because we've, we've had all those instincts bred out of us. Exactly, which is uh, alarming. <laughs> yeah, it really is disturbing. Um, and yeah. and I think like you, uh, a lot of people. I mean, this is. I, I came to natural health the same way that you did. Uh, my mom was a registered nurse, uh, but even back she when she she was a registered nurse. Okay. <coughs> excuse me, but um, you know she grew up in Jamaica, so she kind of knew about the power of nature. Let's call it. Uh, but also back in the sixties when, you know, medicine was very different. And even today I find myself much more impressed with books that were produced on health in the sixties and seventies than most of the stuff that's come out in recent years. Uh, because there isn't back then there wasn't, it wasn't really till I think like the eighties where we really started to see this kind of monopoly approach to food and health. And mm. so there were a lot more books like yours back in the 60s and 70s that were this kind of labor of love. I want to share with the world, not I want to turn a fast book. Mm-hmm. And because unfortunately, even within natural health, we get people who, you know, on these like completely skewed diets, you know, like this one's all this and the other one's all that. And when, and when it, I've met a couple of these people and people I know have met a couple of these people who write these books and they're all, all if, if they could get an, story out of them that doesn't involve how much money they made this year um you know it's 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 really scary i'm not not naming any names but you know who i'm talking about Mm. uh we'll talk later uh anyway i'm not sure i'm not that up on Uh, it oh oh, you'll know who i'm talking about don't don't worry anyway uh, (laughs) regenerative (laughs) regenerative harvesting um talk to us about what what that means to you Mm. yeah that's a really beautiful image so regenerative harvesting is where, for example, I'm going to go out and I'm going to gather food for myself, and the act of my gathering that food brings more food so that instead of the human being an interruptive or destructive force, mm-hmm. my actions are regenerative. So um, it's really simple, like to go out and pluck, for example, the chickweed I was speaking about. If you harvest that chickweed without pulling it out by its roots and you snip it, just, you know, you're giving it a trim, so to speak, mm-hmm. you're going to come back to that patch and it's going to be more lush because right. you did that. It's happier because you actually um, harvested it. So you're regenerating through your actions, the life force of the plant, or it's giving more food. Right. I love that image, you know? Yeah. So humans can work within the landscape. I think that's kind of truly our role is learning how to work within the landscape 
and that by feeding ourselves, we're actually creating more abundance through that act rather than the destruction, which we're always being told is what we do, which is what, you know, monoculture does and the, the CAFOs of animal raising does. But if, you know, if you're mimicking um, the patterns of nature, which is now more permaculture, the talk of permaculture, which is something right. that I resonate with a lot. Um, so you're looking for how can your actions actually while it's benefiting you, benefits the ecosystem, benefits the other animals, or has, you know, you provide more food for more humans. So, yeah, it's a really important concept in my mind to remember that humans can, can through even nourishing for themselves, create more rather than mining and destroying, which is more yeah. what we think of. Yeah, and that, that's an excellent tip as well for the home gardener, because mm -hmm. we've, we've covered regenerative regenerative farming uh, from permaculture standpoint, but also I study uh, Korean natural farming. And Master Cho is coming mm -hmm. to the island in a couple of weeks, so I'm going to be studying who, who with is? his his name. He's Master Cho. He's uh, the oh. the developer of Korean natural farming system. Like your mentor, he does not have a college education. Uh, mm -hmm. And he has developed the system of regenerative farming using pretty much uh, kitchen stuff you know that things that you would find mm. in your kitchen sugar exactly. and, you know and some herbs you know cinnamon stuff like that and um huh. you know has uh found a way of making the plant stronger and then incorporating these so-called weeds uh as um you know protective of the crops that of your food crops so in other words he's he's working on the the uh concept that the you know those the little white mold you see on on weeds uh we cultivate that and that help we basically try to transfer that to the soil where you're growing the food that you want to eat um but also he's not fighting the weeds uh so that yeah so that the the weed because he recognizes the weeds as holding moisture in the soil so yeah. you have to water a lot less when you keep a certain amount of weeds. And, and, you know, our objective is essentially to outpace the weeds with our stuff, not completely kill them. So we, we kind of harvest the best qualities in weeds and transfer them to our food crops. Hmm. So it's a really, really cool system. But one of the things he's, he's uh, well known for is during the Beijing Olympics, uh, they needed to feed a lot of pork to a lot of people. And they needed to do it close to the stadium. And so he, uh, they brought him in, uh, to apply his system of raising pigs right there in the middle of Beijing. And nobody could smell them. You know, that was, wow. that's always the, that's always the challenge, right? With, um, mm -hmm. with these different systems. So he, you know, applied his system, which is essentially lactic acid bacteria and, yeah. you know, which comes off of the milk. And he, yeah, he's Korean. He uses milk. So don't even start with me, people, about how <laughs> people of different, yeah. you know, different descents don't uh, consume milk. Uh, but yeah, he uses that lactic acid bacteria so to he's fermenting the pig poo into um, usable compost right away or something like that. Huh? To some extent, yeah, because it's he's yeah. actually feeding it to them. So it's going right into their digestive tract and their shit doesn't stink. <laughs> so oh, that's a, I see. So he's using probiotics. Yep, exactly. Uh, like, and huh. yeah, and I mean, and they sprayed it. We spray down the bedding with it as well. I have chickens. You would have no idea that I have chickens. My neighbor's garbage smells stronger than my chickens. Wow. <laughs> like, like literally, so I can... Just as <laughs> As an aside, so you're spraying milk onto your chicken? Um, poop, it's or? it's it's essentially it's uh, I can go through the whole process, or or you can listen to the episode. Uh, it's it's yeah, the, yeah. Um, you know it's it's we don't basically. Need to go into it. <laughs> but it's I'm basically just saying, I'm think, curious, think of but... think of the the way off of your yogurt. Although it, this the yeah. way we cultivate it is supposedly has more diversity uh, because we use the the water used for washing rice. And, mm. uh, to, to start mm. that fermentation process and then it yeah. separates and you take that liquid and you're just using a tiny, tiny amount, like a homeopathic mm -hmm. amount of this liquid. Mm. Uh, and you're spraying down the coop every so often. You're putting it a little bit in the chicken's water. You might spray their food a little bit and they don't smell. Interesting. Yeah. It's mm. very, very, very cool. Yeah. And their That's eggs great. are delicious, <laughs> by the way. Wow. Um, so, you know, where are some of the good places where people can feel safe? about picking um you know mm. obviously you know one of the things you mentioned in your book in best case scenario we are avoiding 
the uh, pesticides and herbicides and other sides uh, run that off yeah runoff. Yeah. There's that's a good one. <laughs> so like you know, building like, runoff and hi- highway runoff. Exactly all of that that yeah. nastiness. Um, you know what what are are there, first of all are there restrictions on foraging on some public lands? How do you know where it's safe for you to do this? Uh, yeah. You know, Hawaii is a little bit like the Wild West. You know, it's like, oh, there's a fence. Let me jump it. You know, like <laughs> people don't bother right. you usually. Um, but you know, in other places, it's not like that. So what are the restrictions on right. these public lands and how do people, how can people start to get comfortable with knowing that, okay, nothing was sprayed in this area? Well, first of all, each public land has its own rules. So mm-hmm. you'd have to find out like what, what pub- public land is probably uh, is it a park? You know, is it a uh, preserve? And you're going to ask the questions to who runs it if you're allowed to forage in there. Okay. Like the public parks in Central, you know, in New York gotcha. City, there's been a lot of mixed stories. Yes, you can. No, you can't forage. So, you know, I can't answer to that to each right. area. Each right. place is going to have its own thing. Um, but, you, sh- yeah, why not learn about that? Because you have resources like that. If, you know, we have a lot of wild land around us and we can go berry picking incredible amounts of wild berry picking all around here. Maybe they wouldn't let us, maybe they would. So I didn't ask, <laughs> you know, it's like, so what is my point is each area will have its own rules. And then also you're going to see how obedient you need to be, you know, what risk is there. Um, the other thing is for the kind of foraging that I suggest, these are weeds that really grow near human disturbance. So you don't need to go into pristine wild zone, <clears throat> wild zones you can go to um, an organic farm is a great place to forage. Mm-hmm. So you know they're not treating the soil and they've got these areas that they haven't gotten to that haven't been weeded and that's going to be amazing food. You know, as much as I love the farming, the the wild weeds that come are really right there along with that, you know, so as much, you know, you were talking about the Korean um, farming techniques and you do want to grow plants because I like a lot of cultivated plants too, but right amongst them are your best eating wild edibles. And so why not partner, you know, partner up with some local farms, farmers, organic gardens or community gardens that are organic, and you're going to be able to forge amazingly. I was just going to say, it's not like you've got to go to some pristine piece of land that's far away from humans. Often there isn't a whole lot to forge in those settings. Mm. Um, They're more homogenous. The more disturbance often there's, the more activity, the more Stuff comes up from the earth, the soil is disturbed, the seeds sprout then, you know, the seed banks are in there and with disturbance, they make things pop up. So um, the disturbance makes, makes a lot of good, tasty, wild food. So often when I do teaching, I'm going to go to some, like I do private walks on people's land and they want to learn what they have. And we're going to find the most around the areas where they're disturbing the soil. And they want to go look in the woods where hardly any activity occurs. And there's not a whole lot of diversity there. You know, it's much fewer species. Right. Much less for us to eat. Right, right, right. That makes sense. Um, uh, you're reminding me an, another, I guess this is similar to what you're saying. Um, a friend of mine, she works uh, down like an hour south of me on somebody. She cleans the house for some swanky person who has, you know, tons of acreage. And she goes in there and she forages, uh, for mamaki. I don't know if you know what that is. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a native Hawaiian plant, uh, that has a medicinal mm-hmm. use, uh, really just as a general tonic, I would say. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look it up, it'll say things about, uh, you know, it's good for circulation and it's good for liver congestion and this and that. And, you know, mm-hmm. so it's, it seems like it's a, it's a general tonic. Doesn't have that much of a flavor, to be honest. Uh, some people don't like the, say that it has a very strong flavor. I don't taste any. It, to me, it just cleans up the water. It just makes the water taste extra watery. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but it's, it but refreshes it's, the water. Yes. It's there you like go. Absolutely. It's, it I makes mean, it much more refreshing. And, uh, and, and, she, and she just goes there and she asks them, Oh, can I just pick? Because, it, you know, wildcrafted is theoretically better, right? It's, it's not uh, manipulated to grow in that area. It's, it's growing there because it's, it was the strongest, right? Survival of the fittest. Yeah. I mean, I love wild, but I'm also happy with if something cultivated, I'm happy with all of it. <laughs> yeah. I know. Mean, absolutely. I, I was going to add though to, to the thinking along the lines of foraging for very common weeds, which is a lot of what I focus on with the foraging and feasting book, 
is to really educate people about the the weeds that are are that are going to be everywhere yes. and very prolific. So I just had that thought, just to put the word you know f- for the common you know most prolific weeds. Those are the ones that we want to really get to know and include in our menu regularly. Right, exactly. Um, not the ones that are yeah, not the ones that are far away or the, you know that are endangered or very slow growing perennials or. Or, um, or skeptical, like, you know, that you might have a little, like, you know, you may not be able to identify it right away. You know, we, most of us know, like I said before, most well, that, of us know that we have the lamb's quarters and dandelions in our yard. Yeah, not being able to identify it is another issue which has to be addressed. But even if you're 100% sure, still, you might not eat so much of something that grows much more slowly or is much right. less prolific. And, you you know, so that's part of my theme, too. And it's part of the food sovereignty piece is that the food that is everywhere grows for everyone everywhere. You know, the weeds are everywhere pretty much. And so (laughs) it's reclaiming them. You know, it's kind of changing our thinking about what a weed is and um, what is this alien or this stranger. You know, it's like, ah, it's a friend. It's a gift. Right. Prolific, you know. So that's another part of my, you know, excitement around it. So when doing a plant walk with somebody too, you're going to meander right around where the most, disturbances and they're going to be the plants that they're going to see every day all the time so we want to get to know those plants not to put down the beautiful pristine black cohosh or golden seal which i do use as an herbal medicine practitioner mm-hmm. but i'm not going to use them in the quantities that i will put lamb's quarter into my life or nettle or oat right. straw or burdock and dandelion and these are just things that are trying people are always trying to eradicate these things and so the idea is to turn that around you know why Right. We have so much to offer. Well, what, now this is this is part two of your book, uh, the recipes. Uh, mm. You have found some of the most gorgeous ways to incorporate uh, these foods, and I, what I love is that you, you know, hmm, I I, com- I complain about this all the time on the show, but I, I have, you know, I, I sometimes go to a meal that's supposed to be healthy, and by healthy. Um, they usually mean somewhere on the vegan scale. And it's usually incredibly tasteless and incredibly like not making my stomach happy. <laughs> so um, what I love is that you focus on these traditional recipes and things that are very flavorful and almost romantic the way you've presented it. Uh, and, and, you know, things that come to mind are your fruit ketchup, uh, the herb infused whipped cream, uh, even the, mm-hmm. the everlasting stock pot. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these are, these are mm-hmm. things that really to me are just so, <clears throat> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like they, they're just really, I, really so soulful, uh, yeah, really, really soulful. And I don't see that in a lot of so-called healthy cookbooks, you know, like as a mm-hmm. matter of fact, I was saying to somebody, we, you know, I was duped again. I went to this restaurant to support somebody and it was a, it you know turned out to be a vegan restaurant. I'm like, okay, I eat vegetables all the time. I go there, I feel sick. But I, when we, mm. uh, like two days later, I said to my friend, I said, you know, did you smell anything when you walked into that restaurant? Like the food didn't taste horrible. Like some of them, they just mm-hmm. taste bad. Um, mm-hmm. It didn't taste horrible, but there was no fat. There was no salt or very little salt. Yeah. And I said to her, did you smell any? Do you remember smelling anything? Because I had just made mm-hmm. something in my kitchen that was vegan, which I, you know, I don't think in those terms. But when I turned around, I was like, oh, wait a minute. That whole, you know, everything except for the fish, which I made later was vegan. But my friends walked in when I was just in the first part of the meal, you know, making that. And they go, oh, my God, it smells so good in here. And I was like, that's what was missing in that other meal. There was nothing to tell my body, start the digestive process. Start your mouth watering, start releasing some acids to to digest this meal. And that's what was missing from this meal. So when I look at your book and I see these recipes, I'm just like, this is brilliant. I mean, you've really done a gorgeous job. Thank you. I appreciate your words because I worked really hard. <laughs> and it, it, so it shows really good when somebody gets what you're doing. And you're right. So the idea is to be steeped in the lusciousness of deliciousness that's also good for you, you know, and the recipes reflect the connection to the plant kingdom, but it doesn't stop there. Although the recipes do honor a vegan choice some of the yes. time, 
um, the recipes are still um, designed to be juicy and you know fully wanted. You know, it's they're not they're not prim prim and proper or what's the word? You know, they're not puritanical, um, but they are in a sense uh, clean or that's not even the right word, but you know, committed to mm-hmm. the foods that heal and the foods yeah. that are nourishing. And I think that the juicy and the tasty go hand in hand with that. So right. that when you're deeply satisfied, your taste buds are deeply satisfied, you also are well-nourished physically. Um, to me, they're, they're part of the same story. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that, I think that gets missed all too often because, uh, yeah. you know, people try so hard to be politically correct in, in their choices mm-hmm. or, or in their recipes. And there's usually an element of satiety that gets forgotten. It's mm-hmm. more, it's more about the caloric content, the, you know, filling the belly, having X amount mm-hmm. in cups or whatever on the plate. Uh, not about right. that deeply nourishing, uh, like you say, juicy, sensuous connection to the food. For, for lack of a better description, your book, although, you know, t- like a million times better, sort of reminds me of, of some of the, the older, like witchcraft books. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm like I mean, I not, not, not 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 <laughs> in a not in a negative way, but like a in witchy a witchy perspective. Yeah, it's got this no. kind of you know just this connection to these herbs and in this very um, tactile way that we don't see a lot of anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, because it's also the recipes really reflect. Hopefully, that the viewer, the reader, will go out and gather with their hands mm-hmm. fragrant, you know, richly rich with personality plants, you know, and then you're going to put them into a dish that's going to also be really delicious. So the whole experience is you out in nature gathering back into the kitchen and mixing, alchemically creating, and then feeding your body the thing that's going to make it happy. You know, to me, that's that's what I have tried to do in my life. That's what I try to reflect through this book, you know, is connecting all those dots. Like, how do you immerse yourself in life you know, in nature or in an experience, and then bring that, you know, into into the plate that's also going to go into your body and it's going to feed you deeply. Um, you know, really make it so that your teeth are strong, your bones are healthy, and you have, you know, deep dreams or whatever it is that you're looking for, you know, that you're fed well. Um, uh, so, Part of the the fun, though, of this cookbook is that you get to play with flavors that are outside of of the sort of normal supermarket flavors. Mm-hmm. You know? And also because of my commitment to using real whole ingredients, there's also that. So you're not putting anything artificial to cover and yes. everything, you know, the expression of the food is of itself, so to speak. And so you're looking for those things that are going to speak clearly in a dish. You know, you're going to start with that real, beautiful, organic, grass-fed, raw, heavy cream. That's what you're going to whip and then you're going to infuse it with lemon balm you've just picked, you know, from your wild patch, or maybe you cl- you planted it. That's fine too, the lemon balm, and you get this infused whipped cream. You know, that's just delicious, and it's reflecting all of where you where it it just came from. You know, it's it's not been pasteurized and homogenized, and the herb hasn't been shipped thousands of miles and basically tastes like sawdust by the time you get it. You know, right. so you're celebrating that freshness. Hopefully you can, you know, and well, it's all there for us. That's what I keep trying to share as well. I don't want it to feel elitist. Right. Part of the point, you know. I'm glad that you said that because um, in a way, uh, in addition to to seeming like a witchcraft book, uh, (laughs) it it also (laughs) reminds me a little bit of some of these, um, you know, like the, uh, these chefs that are, you know, doing the, what's, what are they, what are they calling molecular cuisine? Like not, not quite that. Right. Right. Exactly. So in, in a way, some of these ideas seem like they could be that, but they're not. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like, like they, they could be influenced by that, but, but it's much more artistic than that without, you know, having to, you know, bring helium or whatever the frig they use. Exactly. Nitrogen. Exactly. I mean, this is the peasants, this is the peasants kitchen. You know, it's, it's the food that's available to all. That's my wish. You know, right. it isn't the elitist 
chemical factory or and it's actually snipping the cords and the connection to the food industry some as well mm-hmm. you're saying no i'm <clears throat> i'm not going for anything you've invented for me to eat you know i'm coming back to food as it's you know in its natural form and i'm going to create from it i'm going to concoct i'm going to empower myself in the kitchen to feed myself i'm not going to sip the straw back to the food industry lab you know so um, <laughs> there's all these political undertones here. So right, no, no. Everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, when... It's an act of rebellion. You yeah. Know, it's a very strong act yeah. that is empowering and, you know, bringing you back to the point you made, you know, in the beginning of this conversation. It's, it really is about, you know, giving us our strengths and our freedom, you know, or educating ourselves enough that we can feed ourselves that we're not dealing with issues of starvation. Right. And it's, and, and I love that because it brings us more hope than what we are normally given it when we are so tied to that industry, mm-hmm. we lose our freedoms. Just, mm-hmm. there's no other way to say it. Right. Exactly. But yeah. One of the things that you, you had me thinking about just now is because your recipes, I see them as very creative. Uh, many of them do, uh, at least if, if they don't actually harken back to another era when, you know, ketchup wasn't just one thing. I'm just going to throw that out again. Uh, you know, yeah. ketchup wasn't just this tomato thing. You know, there was mushroom ketchup, fruit ketchup. Where did you start with a blueprint? And for those people who want to maybe design some of their own recipes, how do you suggest they get started? Is it, is it more just like, you know, take your macaroni and cheese and add this or, or is it, mm. um, to, you know, or, or is there kind of a, 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 some kind of blueprint that they can follow to kind of build upon? Well, and then... my wish, it, it, yeah, my, my, um, the creating the hundred master recipes that are in the forging and feasting book, their designs, they're actually blueprints, they're master recipes, they're templates. So they're designed to educate the reader um, so that they're fluent in a recipe. And that recipe then can be transformed to their needs, to their likings, to what's actually available in the neighborhood at the time. You don't have peaches right now. You know, you don't have plums. You have autumn olives. You have blueberries. You know, so the, the rotating produce of reality of what we actually have access to so is honored or you know that's the idea with these master recipes so they're they're what there are a hundred master recipes they're templates for someone to learn the language the kitchen arts language basically um and then uh they have variables in them so then you begin to understand what you can move in and out and what has to stay static so there's a skeleton and there are parts you can you know, dress it slightly differently, or I think you know what I mean. But, um, mm-hmm. and then the other thing with the master recipes is they give you the freedom once you have that technique. Like, let's say you, you learn how to make a gratin, it's a very basic, cheesy custard baked dish. And that gratin, though, can be made with hundreds of different vegetables, depending on what, what comes through the season, um, and other nuances that change. So, it's really, you know, the same thing I said about the plant literacy. It's the same thing about kitchen literacy. You know, it's just learning. And so for me, though, I'm a, ki- a cookbook collector, and I've also been cooking since I was 11 because that was my beginning on this journey of whole foods, of changing the way that I ate. Um, my That theme, you know, of following food as medicine began back then. So I was already in the kitchen at a very young age, and that's how you learn is you practice. You know, right. you're just constantly making food and you're constantly making food. And and for me, I'm a cookbook collector. So, you know, I'm reading and reading about different kinds of food preparation. And, I, and I've spent years and years cooking. And then I was hoping that those templates, that the master recipes are what you're asking for, that how can someone learn to cook? Well, right. take that ketchup recipe and you can see the anatomy of a ketchup. And then mm. you can see what you can plug in and out. Right. Um, and that was, you know, that was my hope that, you know, it would bring kitchen literacy. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I, and I can see that. So um, I'm glad that you kind of elaborated on, on that element. And another thing I want to uh, draw out for a lot of people, because a lot of our uh, listeners are interested in lacto fermented foods and you do a lot of that in here. Um, 
Sure, you I know, have for many years in my life. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly, and uh, and so those are also uh, really. Um, I haven't actually done any of those yet, but they're they're really um, put another spin on on you know the standards that I think most of us are already familiar with. You know, your typical mm-hmm. you know, right. p- pickles it's and stuff. It's pushing the edge too, right? It's pushing right. the edge, so it's trying to get folks to be. To push the culinary edge, not in a, like we said, in this crazy kind of elite way, but like in a practical way almost. Right. You know, it's practical to go this way. This is what we have. You know, all of a sudden you've got to be creative and it pushes your edge. And that's the idea is creativity, you know, is at the core of, of this book. It's like, how do we be creative human beings? You know, right. creating our own reality, creating our own food. Or co-creating, because often we're not creating the food that just grows for us, but then creating the dishes that we create from the Right. Well, I've always, I always tell people that my best dishes come when I'm on vacation and I only have about seven or eight ingredients on hand. Uh, You know, so basically I'm, you know, I'm cooking in some foreign kitchen somewhere and I'm obviously not, don't, you know, not plugged into my regular availability of ingredients and yeah you know i've come up with some things unfortunately i can never reproduce them because you know i i'm not boiling my pasta in seawater but (laughs) it's right right. but necessity is is the the mother of invention right Uh, the cook the cookbook part though is very concrete in terms of holding your hand through technique through through how would you say it's like you get to tour around the world, you know, the food world very safely yes. with, you know, highly skilled, hopefully highly skilled outcome. You know, so you're not just being tossed out into the wind. So <laughs> it isn't like the creativity arises from the strength that you get from the understanding that you've taken through touring around these master recipes, you know. Is, is the image I have, you know, you have the confidence and the, the basis to then let creativity flow. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for uh, talking with us today, Dina Falcone. Um, what are a couple of tips that you will, or, you know, just parting words that you'd like to leave with people who want to get started with foraging, want to start cooking and tasting, you know, is it just starting in your garden? Well, I would say, if you're lucky enough to have some foragers in, in your neighborhood, get together with them. Just start attaching yourself to foragers. You know, that's how you really learn. Get a copy of my book if you want. I mean, it's a great tool. You can just have it by your bedside and study the plants on the plant pages and you, you begin to imprint them. Your mind will start to hold them so you'll recognize them when you see them. So it's just opening yourself up to the plant kingdom, observing, going slow, no rush, you know, taking your time, what other thoughts. And I always suggest eat a little wild, but not prematurely, but like try to learn a couple of plants that you can just then constantly just put a little bit into your life, you know, a little food, a little sprinkle onto your salad. So um, let me think, what else would I say? And then I I would say, get creative in the kitchen, you know, take some time to really cook food. Don't eat the food that comes from the food industry, eat the food that comes from the, the earth directly or from a farmer, um, you know, go back to that more primitive state of food and then create something with it. I could say a million things, but maybe we'll just go <laughs> <in> there. <laughs> well, Dina, thank you so much. I, I, again, her uh, book is Foraging and Feasting, a Field Guide and Wild Food Cookbook. Uh, do you have a website, Dina, where you can send people? Yes, uh, it's uh, botanicalartspress.com. BotanicalArtsPress.com. Fantastic. And your book's available on Amazon? It's available through us. We're actually the publishers. Okay. And it's great if they go to our website to buy it. And it is available on Amazon, but it's through us or a third party. It's not through Amazon Direct. Okay. Gotcha. um, Okay. You don't get a better deal on Amazon. We give you the best deal. Awesome. (laughs) Fantastic. This is a whole other conversation. (laughs) We'll we'll talk about that later. Okay. Thank Uh you so much. And uh, please, um, you know, uh, originally when, when we were contacting you, we wanted to talk about your, 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 um, your heavenly hair book, the the beautiful was ah, it beautiful bodies and heavenly earthly hair? bodies, earthly heavenly bodies hair. and heavenly, yeah, uh, yeah. And I wanted to talk to you about that, so maybe we'll have you back about that one day. <laughs> 
Sure. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Oh, no problem. Anytime. Thank you so much for being with us. The Nutrition Heretic Podcast is a production of Savor the Journey, LLC. Our audio editor is Nikola Popovich. Our podcast manager is Crystal McLean, and our operations manager is Linda Hansen. I'm your host, Adrian Hugh, the Nutrition Heretic. You can find us at nutritionheretic.com, where you can download the Nutrition Heretic's free shit list of seven health foods to avoid like the plague. You can also listen to previous episodes at nutritionheretic.com slash podcast. Be sure to like us on social media for updates. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash nutritionheretic and on Twitter at NutriHeretic. Contact us with show ideas, questions, or if you just want to be a guest. And don't forget to rate our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Thanks. Thanks.